The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. thought about why people act the way they do? Why are some people more difficult to deal with while others are always pleasant? Let's find out together. Welcome to Human Behavior. What a trip. Your host is Dr. Jonathan Brower. Our program combines expert guests with people just like you who have questions or comments. We'll have fun exploring human behavior. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Brower. Hello, everybody. This is Jonathan Brower. My show is Human Behavior. What a trip. And we have an interesting trip today and also a troublesome one because, um, uh, well, I'll just tell you very briefly. Uh, my, my guest is Scott Hornoff and we'll be speaking with him on, in a moment. And, uh, he was a police officer in Rhode Island and, uh, for a short time he was a sub, he was a sub, a suspect in a murder occurring in his city. He had nothing to do with the uh, murder, but uh, things turned really crazy all of a sudden, and uh, before he knew it, uh, he was, um, with no physical evidence or eyewitnesses linking Scott to the crime, he was indicted, tried, convicted of first-degree murder, and sentenced to life in prison. Six and a half years after being in prison, he was released because he was totally innocent. This is a terrible story. This is similar to the one in some ways that we had last week, for those of you who heard the other story that's similar to this. But uh, Scott Hornoff, I'm glad you're on the show today. And um, we have time to go into some depth about all this. Uh, what I'd like you to do to begin with, if you wouldn't mind, is um, tell us all who are listening uh, where you grew up, what you did as a kid, how you ended up becoming a police officer, and we'll take it from there. Uh, sure, Dr. Brower. Thank you for having me on your show today. You're welcome. By the way, uh, you can call me Jonathan. Okay. And I'll call you Scott. Just I like it's more comfortable that way for me, if it's Sounds okay good. with you. Sounds good. Okay. So well, tell us about your growing up. And I was born in West Virginia. Uh-huh. I was the youngest of four sons, and a few years after my birth, we relocated to Rhode Island. Uh-huh. I grew up in Warwick, Rhode Island. It was a somewhat of a sleepy bedroom community. It was a very nice neighborhood. I grew up playing pond hockey and organized hockey and following in my brother's footsteps in sports. Uh-huh. When I was 12 years old, my brother, who's closest in age to me, Dave, uh-huh. he's, seven years, he's seven years older, he was accepted into the Rhode Island Municipal Police Training Academy. I see. As a way for him to get into shape, he started jogging and he kind of forced me to jog with him. At 12 years old, I had no interest in it. Yes. But our our short jogs became longer. 
Uh-huh. And and we began jogging regularly and entering road races. And as we ran, he told me about the police academy and then uh, the different aspects of being a police officer once he got on the job. And it was through our jogs that I realized that this was a job that really appealed to me. And it wasn't too long after that that I made up my mind that I was going to be a police officer as well. Uh-huh. And so and- when I turned 18, I put on a suit and tie, and I visited several police departments, including the Warwick Police Department, the one he was on. Uh-huh. And I inquired into... uh I asked them basically how I could become a police officer, and they said that I had to watch the newspaper. I mean, re- watch for the newspaper advertisement. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so I, I got different jobs in security to try and immerse myself in the law enforcement uh, community. Uh-huh. I took uh, criminal justice courses at the local college with my brother, I became a police reserve and rode with him and with other police officers, played on the police hockey team. Uh-huh. And the more I learned about it, the more interested I became. And finally, I saw where they were accepting applications, and I went down and put my uh, name in and went through all the testing, was placed on the list. And I had to be on that list for two years before they called my name, but they did, mm-hmm. and I celebrated my 21st birthday in the police academy. I see. So, um, in the very beginning, when your brother was 19 years old and he was uh, wanting to become a police officer, was that part of why you wanted to be a policeman, because you admired your brother? That was part of it. I Uh I looked up to my brother Dave, and also Uh it appealed to me because, well, for one thing, you're helping people, and that's always been an interest of mine, and you're not... Yes behind a desk eight hours a day, you're out on the street, and you're basically your own boss, at least for a little while. Yes. And so um, how, how many years were you a police officer before you ended up getting put in prison? I graduated from the police academy in December of 83. I spent a year working undercover in the drug unit. Uh-huh. From there, I went to uniform, tactical patrol, and then detectives, and it was in 1992 that I eventually left the department due to the state police's investigation. I see. And um, when, you, when they started investigating you, what was your reaction and what were your emotions about all that? Well, Vic, I have to back up a little bit. Okay, go right ahead. I became involved in the police dive team after a little boy went missing in our city, and we had to call another city's dive team in to find him um, just offshore. So we decided to start our own dive team because we didn't like, uh, we didn't feel like another police department should be doing our job for us. Uh huh. So I got on the dive team, and it was through the dive team that I met Victoria Cushman who worked at the local dive shop. Um, I was unfaithful with my life with my wife, with Vicky on two occasions. It's not uh-huh. something I'm it's not something I'm proud of, but it's part of the story. Yes it is, yeah. And as soon as it happened I realized I'd made a huge mistake and I told her that. And a short time later during the night of August 10th, 1989, I was at a police officer's party, 
and Vicky's on-again, off-again boyfriend climbed up the conduit to her second-floor apartment in Warwick, went in through the window. Uh, we're not exactly sure what happened after that, but he choked her unconscious and killed her. And, and, and why did he want to do that? I've written him a couple letters, and I'd love to sit down and talk with him, but so far he hasn't responded. And he's in prison, I assume? He is in prison right now, yes, sir. Yeah. And the okay. next day, I showed up at work to work second shift detectives, uh -huh. and I was called into my detective captain's office. The door was shut. A tape recorder began to record as my rights were read to me for being a suspect for first-degree murder. Uh-huh. And that was the start of it. So when you became a suspect in the eyes of some other people, what was your reaction? Because obviously you knew you didn't commit a crime. Well, on one hand, I knew because of my relationship to Vicky I might be questioned. Yeah. But when I was being read my rights, it was like a sledgehammer to the gut. I, uh, I had read people their rights hundreds of times before that and to yes. have to do it and to read my own rights out loud, it, it was it was very unsettling, to say the least. Yeah, to say the least. So, um, I would well, if I was in your situation, I'm sure I would be extraordinarily angry that, that I can't do anything about this. I, I was more in shock than anything, but I wanted to cooperate because I was innocent, and I wanted mm -hmm. them to get on with the investigation and find out who killed her. Yes. So... They asked me if I knew Vicky. I said, yes, I did. I knew her very well from Alpine Ski and Sports, the dive shop that I frequented. Uh -huh. They had found a letter in a sealed envelope in her apartment that talked about our relationship. There were no threats in the letter, but it had my name on it, and she referred to me, so they knew that I was involved with her. Uh -huh. When they asked if I had had a sexual relationship with her, I didn't say yes, and I didn't say no. I just kept repeating we were very good friends because it was the first time I'd ever seen an interrogation tape recorded, and I wasn't—I knew what type of tricks that police officers were allowed to play, and all I was thinking was that they were going to play this tape recording to my wife, and she was going to get upset and say something that wasn't true. I see. So I asked them if taking a polygraph would help. They shut off the tape recorder and said that they would arrange it, uh-huh. During the pre-polygraph uh, interview, I immediately admitted to my infidelities. I took the polygraph. The polygraph examiner said I was truthful, that I didn't do it, and I was subsequently cleared as a suspect. So at that moment, then, you, you were probably quite relieved, and they let, they let you go, right? I was quite relieved, but at the same time, I knew that they didn't conduct a thorough investigation. They didn't seize my clothing. They didn't tow my car to headquarters to process it, but I, w I was just happy it was over with, or yes. at least I thought it was over with. And then when did the door shut, close again? Um, the members of the major crime unit felt like I may have been protected and they wanted to question me. I would have been open to it had I known, but they were told that the investigation was through as far as I was concerned, so they went to the Rhode Island State Police with their concerns, uh -huh. and the Attorney General assigned the State Police to investigate me rather than the murder. 
and the state police began doing that, I believe, in 1991. I found out about it in 1992. And so what were they, what were they finding in their, in, in their investigation that prompted you to go back to prison? <clears throat> they, weren't, they weren't finding a whole lot. They were looking for any inconsistencies at all. I went down and spoke with them voluntarily on several occasions, spending hours with them without an attorney, which was probably not the smartest decision. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted them to see that I was innocent so that they would focus on solving this crime finally. Yes. And they were asking me uh, very specific questions of things that had happened years earlier, things that I didn't remember. And unfortunately, my tape-recorded interrogation with my detective captain was either lost, misplaced, or uh, taped over. They didn't have that. Uh-huh. So what I told them, as far as my recollect- recollections, they would have been much fresher, and that wasn't available. Yes. So then what uh, happened? Well, I cooperated, my brother cooperated. They must have interviewed everybody in the police department and everybody that was at that police officer's party. I volunteered blood and hair samples and anything else they wanted. Did, did they take those samples of you? They did. Uh-huh. And it took two grand juries. The first grand jury supposedly wasn't going their way, so they dismissed it and convened a second one, which I was allowed to testify at. I knew as soon as I walked in that I was in trouble because there were plates of food to have this big party after my testimony. Um, women thumbed through a bridal magazine, men were sleeping, and the prosecutor was yelling and screaming at me and hurling accusations, and I later found out he had done that to just about anybody who um, tried to bring up any idea of my possible innocence. So the so, grand jury didn't uh, conduct themselves in the proper way? Well, the grand jury is controlled by the state, yes. and, the, and the prosecutor runs the show. Yeah, but if the if people are supposed to be listening to what the evidence is and they're doing other things, they're somehow still, that doesn't seem right. No, it doesn't seem right. So then what happened? Uh, they came back with a true bill, which means they indicted me, which basically says that they believe there was enough evidence. If brought to trial, I would be found guilty. Uh-huh. I was at my brother's house. It was right around Christmas time, and they surrounded my brother's house with my wife and two small sons inside. I went outside and surrendered myself. I was uh, arrested, transported to state police barracks. They refused to let me see my attorney or give me a suit for court the next day, but I made bail, and we started preparing for trial. Okay. So we'll, we'll stop at this moment, and we'll come back in about a minute or so. We're having a commercial break. Okay. And we'll talk about the mail and what happened next. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Legal Shield. Total access. Everyone deserves legal protection. With Legal Shield, everyone can access it, no matter how traumatic or trivial. Check out players.buildinglastingsuccess.com and jjbrower.com. 
Call Jonathan at 805-535-5111. DefeatAnxietyNow.com is geared to help people suffering with anxiety and depression. Intensive, short-term, dynamic psychotherapy helps many people get to the absolute core of their problems and resolve them. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Interested in investing in real estate, leveraging other people's money? Call Jonathan Brower and he can give you some more information. 805-535-5111. That's 805-535-5111. SportsPsychologySociology.com can help you improve your ability to excel and enjoy your athletic endeavors. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Human Behavior What a Trip with Dr. Jonathan Brower. If you have a question or comment for the show this week, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's toll free 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to jbrowerphd at yahoo.com. Now, back to Human Behavior, What a Trip. Hi, everybody. This is Jonathan Brower, <clears throat> Human Behavior, What a Trip. I'm with my guest, Scott Hornoff. And, um, Scott, we were talking about you were indicted and then you had bail. This is after the grand jury. What happened next? We began preparing for trial um, unfortunately, my trial attorney was in over his head. We, he had never defended in a murder case before. He had prosecuted. He was a former assistant attorney general. We probably should have hired an investigator or two. He, he was confident because of the lack of physical evidence and no witnesses. He, he yeah. thought it would be a short trial. Yeah. So and, in retrospect, why wasn't there investigators on your behalf? That's a good question. He, he's never really talked about that with me. He, he just said that he didn't prepare properly. Wow. That's terrible. So um, what happened next? There was a six-week trial in June, May and June of 1996. This was right after the O.J. Simpson trial, and oh, wow. a, lot of, a lot of people had bad feelings about anybody accused of murder. Yeah. And also Rhode Island is notorious for scandals and corruption. And I think that the prosecution was able to get the jury to dislike me and basically make the leap that if I could commit adultery, I could murder somebody. That's quite a leap. I thought so. I mean, actually, that's it's, it's totally ridiculous because uh, having an extramarital affair, number one, is not a criminal crime. And so how can it be compared to uh, anything else except? Right, right before is, trial, yeah. we, also, we also learned that Vicky was wearing a Braxton Hicks dental mouth guard when she was killed, and it was still in her mouth uh, when her body was discovered. It's used to keep your teeth from grinding at night. Uh-huh. So the prosecution's whole scenario of her and I acting out the Romeo and Juliet balcony scene and me climbing up and talking yeah. to her was totally unfounded and unreasonable, but the jury yes. didn't the jury didn't seem to care. So what was going through your mind during the trial? 
were you having ups and downs, hopes, and then concerns you were going to lose the case? My friends and family were all supportive who sat in on the trial because they saw that the state had absolutely no evidence against me. Yes. But I still had a feeling like it wasn't going very good, and I was pretty sure that I was going to be found guilty. Right. And then the day you were found guilty, what happened happened inside you when you got that verdict? When the verdict was read, I... uh, my mom fell back into the the pew, the, yeah. the bench seat, yeah. and I remember Vicky's family, her sister, jumping up and down and clapping and cheering, and I took off my wedding band and gave it to my ex-wife because there's no jewelry allowed in prison, and uh-huh. my brother just kept saying, you know what I know, as they led me off in handcuffs. Yeah. And, and- they... They took me down into the basement, into the cell block, and took my belt and my shoelaces and strip-searched me and then transported me to the Rhode Island prison. And how long were you in the Rhode Island prison? I I came back to court on July 10th of 1989, and I was sentenced to life in prison. And I was in prison. I was placed in protective custody due to being a police officer. But yeah. I think that was harder time than if I was in general population. I was in prison for six years, four months, and 18 days. My state appeal was denied. My motion for new trial based on newly discovered evidence was denied. Uh, We had found an investigator with the National Police Defense Foundation who found footprint impressions that were three sizes larger than mine. There was a serial killer who was recently arrested in Warwick around the same time as Vicky's murder. Uh-huh. And he was in prison bragging that he killed her, and he confessed to three black Muslims who were coming forward for me, a white cop. Yeah. So I kind of felt like Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption. I thought I would get this new trial, but the judge denied it without, yes. even, without even holding a hearing. Yes, yeah, so, uh, so the whole time you were in prison, were you in the Rhode Island prison? Yes, sir. And... Uh, Tell me more about the protective custody because how protect how protective could it be? It it, it wasn't. We were supposed to be separated from general popula- general population inmates. I was with huh. other police officers, political figures, uh, informants, uh, otherwise known as snitches. Who yeah. anybody anybody who might be in danger in general population juveniles. Uh, child molesters, uh-huh. rapists. There were a few that my brother and I had both put in there. So during that time you were in prison, did any of these um, prisoners who earned the earned the um, earned their way to become a prisoner were any of those people trying to kill you or hurt you, uh-huh. or, or they or were they really sequestered so you never had contact with them? Oh, I had a lot of contact. Everybody's tested in prison, and I was tested, and you just have to show that you're not going to back down and you're willing to do whatever's necessary to protect yourself. Yes. So at times you had to be worried about uh, somebody killing you. Constantly. I kept my back to the wall, and I stuck to myself pretty much all the time. I, I usually sat away from everybody else. And then during the day, uh, each day you had 
a certain number of hours you could be outside working out or running or doing weights or whatever you wanted to do, right? Uh, there was no weights. We had a very small cement yard. I didn't touch a blade of grass. Um, usually I would get on the phone and either talk to somebody who was helping to fight to prove my innocence or with a loved one. And how many, uh, how many hours a day were you allowed to be in the yard, so to speak, rather than in your prison cell? We would have yard for an hour and a half if they allowed us to go out there. And when wouldn't they allow it? Uh, if they didn't feel like going out there and watching us or if they had something better to do or if it was raining or if there was a lockdown or a search was going on. Uh, there, there were many different reasons why they would uh, limit it. Wow. So you really were a prisoner, I mean, in every sense of the word. It was highly restrictive. The only the only area that was more restrictive was segregation. Uh-huh. And segregation was with who? Segregation was right above us, and it was for inmates who had been in fights or serious trouble. I see. So um, basically you were in a cage most of the time. I was. I was. Yeah. In fact, uh, there were many prison tours by criminal justice college students. And uh, during my college courses, I had taken that tour, and there I was on the other side. Yes. So um, as the years went by, you know, the first year, the second year, the third year, and you're still in prison, I would imagine at some point you had to have a concern that you were going to be stuck in there for the rest of your life. I did. When the motion for new trial based on new evidence was denied, uh, we started fighting, and I was the first post-conviction DNA test in Rhode Island, but uh -huh. the evidence, as it happens in 22% of the cases that the Innocence Project handles, it was uh, lost, destroyed, or determined to be inconclusive. After that, I really felt I was going to be in there the rest of my life. So at that point, they didn't have good DNA on you? Well, if you look at the crime scene photos, there's a pair of rubber dishwashing gloves turned inside out next to Vicky's body. Yeah. And there was blood on the inside of one of the fingers and blood on the cuff. And we had to go through court to have those tested. There was a gauze bandage between the rubber gloves that had infectious seepage on it, but they said it was never tagged as evidence. We felt like that may have been on the killer's finger. Uh -huh. And there was what we thought was blood on the window screen. We had the gloves and the window screen sent to SRI Labs in California, and the director told us that he didn't, he wasn't able to get a positive uh, DNA profile from it. So was that to your advantage or disadvantage? I'm not clear. That was to my disadvantage. They have to have a profile to prove that it's not yours. I see. <clears throat> so, so at some point. Um, did they ever get the correct DNA? No, sir. No. I see. So um, I would imagine during these six and a half years you were in prison that it was a very hard place to be living and it was uh, extremely painful and awful. I, I can't even begin to describe it. it Maybe if you imagine a 500-pound gorilla on your back pounding on your chest and uh, yes. your voice inside screaming at the top of its lungs that you're innocent. Yes. 
Yeah, this is, this is quite a terrible scenario for you. It's hard enough if you're guilty, I think, and to be innocent. It's and and a police officer and having placed my trust in the criminal justice system and devoted my life to it. Yes. Okay, we're coming up for a uh, our second commercial break. So we'll come back in about 60 to 90 seconds and take uh, the next segment and, and continue with this interesting and troublesome story. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. Legal Shield, total access. Everyone deserves legal protection. With Legal Shield, everyone can access it, no matter how traumatic or trivial. Check out players.buildinglastingsuccess.com and jjbrower.com. Call Jonathan at 805-535-5111. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. DefeatAnxietyNow.com is geared to help people suffering with anxiety and depression. Intensive, short-term, dynamic psychotherapy helps many people get to the absolute core of their problems and resolve them. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Interested in investing in real estate, leveraging other people's money? Call Jonathan Brower and he can give you some more information. 805-535-5111. That's 805-535-5111. SportsPsychologySociology.com can help you improve your ability to excel and enjoy your athletic endeavors. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Listening to Human Behavior, What a Trip with Dr. Jonathan Brower. If you have a question or comment for the show this week, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's toll free 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to jbrowerphd at yahoo.com. Now, back to Human Behavior, What a Trip. Hi, everybody. This is Jonathan Brower with my guest, Scott Hornoff. And uh, Scott has been a, was, was a police officer and he was, uh, he was convicted of a crime he never committed. And he was in prison for six and a half years and his life was a mess at that point. Understandably, and there was nothing he could really do about it. So Scott, we're coming back to the sh- part where we were talking about the DNA and, uh, they never found any DNA on anybody, you or anyone else, who may have committed the crime? No, sir. The testing came back as inconclusive. Yes. So then what did you do about all that? What was the next step you guys took? Uh, 
taking a deep breath and uh, trying to think of what was the next step, which was a federal appeal. Uh huh. There's usually not very much success in those, however. Did you try that? I was um, I was in the process of um, composing my own federal appeal. My attorneys had said it would probably have a better chance if I did it myself. Uh-huh. So, so I was doing that. I had also filed a federal civil suit against the prison for prison conditions, so I had a little experience as well as being a law clerk. Uh-huh. I, knew, I knew my way around the law books by then. Yes. So did, did any of this help you? Before my federal appeal was filed, I, uh, I got some startling news. I was called down to the attorney-inmate conference room, and when I walked in, this was the end of October of 2002, my attorney was there, so was the prosecutor who prosecuted my case, another prosecutor, and the two state police detectives. Yeah. And they told me to take a seat, and when I did, I started thinking, what are they going to accuse me of now? Because I had heard that they were looking to clear a couple other murders by basically pinning them on me. Yeah. Before you go on, just so I get the uh, time sequence... This was October 2002, and you went into prison in what year? I went in in June 1996. Okay, 1996. I'm, All right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was November 4th when they when I had this meeting with my attorney and the investigators. Okay. All right. So basically, this was six and a half years later now. Yes, sir. Ah, and then the news was. They asked me if I knew anybody by the name of Todd Barry, and I told them several names with the last name of Barry, kids that I had grown up with. Uh-huh. And they said, no, do you know Todd Barry? And I said, no, I've never heard of him before. And it turned out that he was Vicky's on-again, off-again boyfriend. He was um, uh-huh. a carpenter who lived in the city next to mine. I'd never had any contact with him. The police had never had any contact with him until the end of October of 2002 when he came in to confess that he had killed Vicky, not me. And why did he want to confess? That's a good question. I'd like to ask him that one as well. He, This was 13 years after Vicky's murder. Because after all, some years went by before I was uh, questioned the second time. And at first they thought he was crazy or he had a terminal illness or he was looking for notoriety. Uh-huh. Um, it turned out that he was waiting for his mom to pass away. He was full of guilt and remorse, and he kept seeing me in the news, um, how I was fighting and I wasn't giving up my fight to prove my innocence. So, so if I'm hearing you correctly, Todd Berry wanted... Um Wanted to wait till his mother died, so she, so he wouldn't have to have guilt on her mind that he was a murderer. That was one of the things he said. But after Vicky's murder, he had gone on to get married and have children of his own. Uh huh. So for him to come forward, uh, it it must have really taken a lot for him to do that. It must have really been weighing on his mind and his uh, spirit heavily. So if he uh, never. <clears throat> came forth, or if he ended up dying in an accident or whatever, then you'd still be in prison. Yes, sir. I, I have no doubt about that. Oh, God, this is so terrible. I mean, it's good that you're out, but this is very distressing, the way this whole thing works. So then they, 
so then uh, once he confessed, how many minutes or hours or days before you were let out of prison? Right after they told me that he had confessed, they still wanted me to admit to going to Vicky's apartment the night she was murdered and seeing this terrible crime scene and doing nothing. I told them it didn't happen. I wasn't going to admit to it. They could keep me in prison the rest of my life. Eventually, they said that they were going to take me to the courthouse in about an hour and release me. Uh huh. So I went back to the module, the prison mod, and I called my mom and I called my friend Tina and I told them I was coming home. Yes. And then I gave away all my stuff to the other inmates and shortly after that I was transported to the courthouse. Yeah. My attorneys obviously were good with me being released. The attorney general was there, he was fine with it, but the trial judge uh, had a problem with the wording in the motion, so he sent me back to prison. Why? Uh, he didn't, he, you would have to know this judge. He, he was just uh, a can, cantankerous old uh, hard-lined, ultra-conservative, uh, I'm not sure exactly how else to describe him. But he, he really didn't care about the truth or justice or uh, anything else. This is so disgusting. <laughs> And so how many more days or months or whatever it was before you got out of prison then? Well, it wasn't too long. The next day was an election day, so the courts were closed. The following day, November 6th of 2002, I was back in court. The only good thing was it allowed some of my family from West Virginia and Florida to get up to Rhode Island, so the courtroom was full when I was released. Uh huh. And my oldest son was there when I went into prison. He was uh, he was just six years old. Um, yeah. And and when you came and when you and when you came out of prison, he was how old? He was a young man. He was over six foot tall, over two hundred pounds. And my idea of him jumping into my arms, uh, he pretty much picked me up off the yeah. ground. So how old was he when he was in the courtroom hugging you? Well, from eighty nine to two thousand and two. Thirteen years. Yes, sir. He he was uh, he was just a teenager, but he was a big boy. <laughs> so he was uh, nineteen years old at the time. I'm sorry. Well, I'm I'm doing the arithmetic six and thirteen. So he was nineteen years old when he was hugging you in the courtroom. Uh, he was about thirteen. Oh, thirteen. In okay. In two thousand and two. Okay. So uh, and and had he visited you at all during the time you were in prison? Yes, my son's visited me quite a bit. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. So, um... That was probably the worst part about prison, seeing uh, seeing my sons and having them see me like that, and also watching them leave and I couldn't go with them. Yes. So I assume that your sons saw you as innocent the whole time. Yes, they, they had no doubt. Yeah, okay, that's good. So, um... When you, when you, so the day you walked out of the court and you were free, um, did it seem kind of surreal? Did it seem uh, just wonderfully great? What was, what was it like for you? I was in shock again, but it was a good shock. And uh-huh. before my trial, I was portrayed as a monster of Warwick, and the media really did a good job of, I think, influencing the jury. And now, suddenly, I was their best friend, and they all wanted to talk to me. Okay. On that note, we're going to take our last commercial break, and we'll come back and uh, 
continue with the saga, which is very interesting, but also very um, terrible in many ways. Okay. Hang on, everybody. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health & Wellness. Legal Shield. Total access. Everyone deserves legal protection. With Legal Shield, everyone can access it, no matter how traumatic or trivial. Check out players.buildinglastingsuccess.com and jjbrower.com. Call Jonathan at 805-535-5111. DefeatAnxietyNow.com is geared to help people suffering with anxiety and depression. Intensive, short-term, dynamic psychotherapy helps many people get to the absolute core of their problems and resolve them. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Interested in investing in real estate, leveraging other people's money? Call Jonathan Brower and he can give you some more information. 805-535-5111. That's 805-535-5111. SportsPsychologySociology.com can help you improve your ability to excel and enjoy your athletic endeavors. Call Dr. Jonathan Brower at 818-707-4557. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Human Behavior, What a Trip, with Dr. Jonathan Brower. If you have a question or comment for the show this week, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's toll-free, 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to jbrowerphd at yahoo.com. Now, back to Human Behavior, What a Trip. Hello, everybody. This is Jonathan Brower. My guest is Scott Hornoff. We're talking about the saga of Scott uh, Hornoff being uh, convicted of a crime. He never, he never, convic- he never uh, did, and he was in prison for six and a half years, an innocent man. And now we're talking about uh, going to court and leaving the courthouse finally and being a free man. So tell me how it felt for you to be a free man right away and over the next few months. One of my biggest fears in prison was that my mom was going to pass away while I was still in there uh-huh. and, and not see me walk free. But she was there when I was released, and it was just a great joy to be able to hug her and hear her tell me that she was proud of me for hanging on and fighting and that I could live again. Yes. Is, is your mom still alive? No, sir. She passed away two years ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. So... um so, for the first few days, few weeks, few months, uh, what did you do? How did you spend your time? My first what? two days, I didn't sleep. Yeah. I uh, I ended up uh, going through three or four counselors because I was having what they call post-traumatic stress disorder, and none of that really seemed to help. I. Yeah. I reconnected with uh, my family as best as I could with my sons, uh-huh. spending, a, spending a lot of time with them. I immediately resumed taking care of my mom and taking her to the doctors and trying to get her in better shape. What was she having a problem with? Uh, she had smoked all of her life, so she had COPD and emphysema and oh all, all of the other afflictions that go along with it. Yeah, that's terrible, yeah. 
So um, you're taking care of your mom, and you were seeing your kids, and and I also um, had to fight for my job back. The city of Warwick said that they weren't going to reinstate me as a police officer. So one of my innocence project attorneys, Rob Feldman, he took my case for me, and we went to Superior Court in Providence and won. Justice Rogers ordered that I be reinstated. The city was going to appeal it, but we settled, and uh, I was reinstated and immediately retired and given a pension, which helped quite a bit because I had been living off of uh, credit cards. Yes. And uh, while I was in prison, I divorced with my ex-wife, Rhonda, and one of my supporters I actually ended up mar marrying in September of 2003, and she helped me out a great deal. Uh, as far as financially, emotionally, and uh, spiritually. And so, what, what is your wife's your second wife's name? Tina. Tina. And how did she? How did you and she even meet? We met when I was suspended without pay and awaiting trial. Oh, I I, see. I managed to find a job working as security at a local amusement park. This is before you were in prison or after? It was before. But, I see. But my ex-wife didn't like me having friends who were female, and understandably so, since I had been unfaithful. Yeah. And so I broke off the friendship, but after my ex-wife and I divorced, uh, Tina and I reconnected, and she actually became my biggest advocate and put me in touch with the Innocence Project and uh, yeah. federal attorneys. So, so did she ever visit you when you were in prison, or was this... Uh, over prison? 300 times. What? Over 300 o times? Over 300 times. Oh, good for her and you. Wow. This should be a movie, by the way. <laughs> I'm, I'm finally writing a book. It's taken 10 years and a lot of encouragement, but good. I'm finally well, writing book, my book. After your book comes out, maybe there can be a movie, too. Maybe. So, so, um, uh, so when you came out, uh, Tina had some money, you had some pension money. But, uh, I, didn't, I didn't have the pension money. I had to sue for that, and that took uh, oh. quite a bit, a couple years. Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, um, the other day when we spoke over the phone for a few minutes, I mentioned this. Uh, it seems to me that for every year you were in prison, you should get a huge amount of money, something like a million dollars tax-free. And then you told me that uh, in Rhode Island, you don't get any subsidy whereas people who actually committed crimes do get subsidies when they leave prison. Yes, sir. How uh, does that work? There's no compensation statute on the books in Rhode Island or actually in many of the states for exonerees. Usually parolees receive uh, more services and more assistance than people who were actually proven innocent. Yeah, this is all very disturbing. I mean, the whole thing is disturbing, but this is one part of it. So... Um, Theoretically, if you had if you had uh, insisted that you were you wanted to go back to the Rhode Island Police Department, would your life have been a mis misery? Or, 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 or would your colleagues, most of them, think well of you and want you back? Some of them supported me. Some of them didn't. There yeah. were probably as many cliques in the police department as there are in high school. And yeah. I, I really wouldn't know who to trust, so I wouldn't be comfortable going back to the police department I had worked on. Maybe a different one. Yeah, but then then you decided not to bother with another one, another police department? 
While I was in prison, I felt like my new path was going to be in educating people about the epidemic of wrongful imprisonment and also hopefully educating and training uh, public safety and law enforcement professionals as to um, how easy it is to get to become, you know, focused on somebody who hasn't committed the crime rather than focusing on solving the crime. Yes. And um, you also mentioned to me when we spoke the other day that you went to uh, Afghanistan to help in some ways with – tell tell the audience what you did there. After I earned my master's degree from Boston University, which I thought would help me find employment – I still wasn't able to secure meaningful employment in the U.S. And yeah. so, what, what, excuse me, what was your master's degree in? Criminal justice. Okay, that, that makes sense. <laughs> and uh, when I was in prison, I saw the second plane fly into the the towers in New York City. I, I oh saw God. the plane go down in uh, Pennsylvania and hit the Pentagon. And uh, I was oh, wow. beside myself because I couldn't do anything to help. If I was out here, I would have immediately gone down there and tried to help. Yes. Uh, I tried to donate blood in there. I tried to do whatever I could. And uh, I felt like by having the opportunity to go at, to Afghanistan that I might be able to help our troops come home a little quicker. And what was your job there? What did you do? You were a civilian at this point. <clears throat> My first two years, I was an international uh, police mentor to the Afghan border police. Uh-huh. And I tried to train them to basically be able to take care of their own country so we could go home. Yes. And then I spent uh, my next two trips over were at Afghan border police academies, training them with uh, Russian-based firearms. Uh-huh. And then this last time I went over, I spent a total of uh, three years, five trips over there. The last time I was providing close protection to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers in Kabul. Uh-huh. Yes. So how is it for your wife, Tina, to have you be gone so long? Um. It was very difficult, especially my relationship with my daughter. It was a lot like prison all over again. Yes, right. Well, in the sense of you didn't have you didn't have access to your to your uh, wife and your child. Yeah. Right. The, the separation, as well as the living conditions over there. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it was another. It was another hurdle. Yes. So, how many years has it been since you've? been living in Rhode Island, or excuse me, Georgia? Uh, we moved down there in 2006. However, uh-huh. I started going overseas approximately six months after we got there. Uh-huh. And so how many months or years has it been since you've last been to these faraway places? I returned uh, 11 months ago in April. I see. So I imagine at this point that you're getting more normalcy with your wife, your biological daughter from Tina and then from your other kids, too. I had uh, some separation with my sons due to my um, relationship with my ex-wife, but Uh being up here in Rhode Island, I've recently reconnected with them, and uh, it feels pretty good. Good. So uh, what do you picture your life to be like for the next 25 or 30 years? What do you want? want? I've learned not to make any plans, but I'm exploring uh, providing expert witness testimony and consulting regarding law enforcement investigations. I'm a Echoing Green semifinalist for one of their fellowships 
I want to start an organization that will train law enforcement investigators. Uh-huh. One of the biggest areas of causes of wrongful imprisonment is eyewitness misidentification, as well as uh, how live and photo lineups are conducted. And yeah. I'm, cre- I'm creating some in-service trainings that will help to alleviate and reduce that. Yes. So all these things can keep you very busy and also helping you in a way that you didn't get that help when you were in trouble for nothing you did wrong. Well, I'd like to continue to try and help people and give back. Um, yes. A lot of people worked very hard to prove my innocence, even though it took the true killer coming forward. That doesn't dismiss what the people did for me while I was in there. Yes. Yeah. And I just recently found a uh, co-author in Rhode Island who I'm comfortable with, and we've begun writing a book. And I recently published a website that has some sample chapters as well as the book proposal. I'm hoping to attract some attention from a literary agent. Yes, well, it seems to me you'll find one because this is a very compelling story. And so I would imagine the book will do well, and I would imagine the movie would do well. I hope so. I, th- I, I think so. It's, uh, it's pretty much a yeah. one-of-a-kind, I've been told. I'm the only white middle-class cop who's ever been wrongfully imprisoned and then proven innocent, and uh, especially with the true killer coming forward and confessing. Yes. So all these different things, if they hadn't come along the way they did, to begin with, you never would have been put in prison. Then once you were in prison... Uh, this guy comes along many years later and says, I, I killed so-and-so, not Scott Hornoff. And right. Actually, he called the Warwick Beacon newspaper the day I was convicted and said, you got the wrong guy. Um, you need to look into this. Yes. Yeah. But you're still uh, going strong, so uh, that's good. Um, yeah, I think that going... Afghanistan actually helped me better than the counselors because overseas people had put their lives in my hand and uh, vice versa, and it gave me back a sense of self-worth. Uh-huh. Yes. So um, we're running out of time, so I'm going to say goodbye to you now. You, you, I had a great time listening to your story, but um, thank you so much for being part of the show. All right. Thank you for and, having uh, me. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Okay, thank you very much. Thank you again for listening today. Tune in every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for Human Behavior, What a Trip! with Dr. Jonathan Brower on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have fun experiencing your human behavior. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.